Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Welcome back to another episode of Wiser Podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Patricia Bortoluzzi and Alex Speak. That last name might ring a bell for our listeners. Alex has served as the producer for our program for the past year and has done an amazing job editing and producing most of the episodes you've been hearing. She is a third-year medical student at Emory going into surgery, and her mother is Dr. Patricia Bortoluzzi, a plastic surgeon in Montreal, Canada. We're going to actually have each of them introduce each other. Alex, do you want to go first? Hmm. How does one introduce their mom? My mom is a craniofacial surgeon in Canada. She was past president of the Canadian Society of Plastic Surgeons. She is past program director for plastic surgery at the University of Montreal, where she currently serves as director of the craniofacial clinic. My daughter is a third-year medical student at Emory. She did her high school and primary school in Montreal, and she decided to be adventurous and do her college in the United States at Union College in upstate New York, after which she was accepted at Emory Medical School. Mom, if you could kind of walk us through how you got interested in medicine and the pipeline there, because I know you're first-generation Canadian, so it's not always obvious when you're first-generation. So my parents are immigrants from Italy, both uneducated, I would say. I mean, they went up to the third grade and it was post-war Italy and they decided to make a better life for themselves and their eventual family. So they decided to emigrate to Canada where uh, there were opportunities, as they were told. I grew up in a small home. We were living in an upper duplex that we rented. Both my parents worked very hard. My father was a contractor in construction and eventually opened up his own little construction company. And my mother was a seamstress in a factory. So both my parents were manual laborers. And the one thing that they've always stressed as we were growing up was education. They didn't tell me where to go or what to do or anything. But as long as I got good marks and brought home a good report card, everything was great which I ended up doing because I was driven that way. By the way, when I first started grade school, I didn't speak a word of English because we spoke Italian at home. We weren't allowed to speak any other language at home so that we would maintain the Italian language. I grew up in a French neighborhood, so French was my second language. So I didn't speak a word of English when I started school, and within six weeks... I was fluent in English. I remember even saying to myself, Jesus, that was, that was really kind of easy. And I was getting great marks and things were going well. And then in Canada, we had these two years, in Quebec specifically, uh, called CEGEP. It's like our pre-university years. And uh, by that time, we had a little bit of more money. I asked my parents to go to this one English private school for these two pre-university years. When I got there, it was like a cold shower. I thought I was on another planet. Everyone around me knew so much more than me. They were so much more advanced in any and every topic that I was taking. So that was a really rough year because I realized, geez, I really thought that I was a cat's meow. And all of a sudden, I'm not. 
So I had to put on my big boy pants and work really hard at it, understand what I was missing. And sure enough, by the second year, the marks came back, but I had to take that extra step. That, that really was a turning point where I realized if you work hard enough, you'll get there. But sometimes life throws you these curveballs and you've got to get that extra energy to get you there. And then I applied to medical school because you can apply to medical school right after these two years. And I didn't get into medical school because my first year marks were just not up to it. So life throws you another challenge. And I decided to do an undergrad at McGill University in an honors physiology. And after one year of that, I said, oh my God, I do not like this at all. It was extremely competitive. It was quite cutthroat. And I said, I'm not doing another two years of this. So I took the three-year program and made it a two-year program. What I realized uh, was that biology came easy to me. The math, I didn't care about very much, nor economics. But I was interested in the biology of things. And then I was hanging around with people who were very high achievers. And I achieved as well as them. So why not? And so what was the best I could become in my head would be a doctor. And that's basically the reason that guided me that way. It's really because it was a subject that came easy to me. I enjoyed it. I loved being with people. I loved caring for people. So I felt like it was going to be the right fit. It was a struggle to get there. Another interesting story, when I applied after my two years of undergrad, I applied to the University of Montreal, and for that I had to write a French test because all my education was done in English. So I wrote the French test, and then I got a letter of refusal, and the reason for the refusal was that my knowledge of the French language was insufficient. Now you have to understand, French is my second language. If you would listen to me speaking French, you would not know that I'm not a francophone. I learned then though that when I took the test, I got an 85. The passing mark was an 87. So I was very distraught with that. So much so that I wrote a letter to the medical faculty, the admissions bureau, and said, I don't understand. Do you remember some of the questions? One of them was, do you say uh, free as the wind or free as the air? And I said to them, I know exactly what air is and I know exactly what wind is. And because of that, you're refusing my potential application to medical school. So they responded by saying, okay, well, we'll review your chart. And two weeks later, I called them because they hadn't called me yet and asked them, well, do you have any news? And they told me, oh, yeah, you're accepted. So that's how I found out I got into medical school. And interestingly enough, my first year of medical school, I got a prize for having the highest marks of the year of all medical students. So that's just to show you little things, opportunities, whatever guides you along the way, and a little bit of self-induced drive. So that was my trajectory towards medical school. Then what I want to kind of ask following that, Alex, have you had struggles like this in your journey to being a doctor? I've definitely had some struggles in applying. I applied to med school twice, and that's something that I've not shy about. I know a lot of people are reapplicants, and I think it's important to talk about as well. I'm only 28 years old, but looking back, those were tough years, especially putting so much work into something that you don't have that much control over the end decision. 
it's always competitive, but I assume it just gets more and more competitive and life happens and sometimes things happen in your life that can affect your grades and then you feel like you're working uh, against that inertia for a while. Hearing those stories that my mom talked about helped in terms of sometimes, sometimes doors open and sometimes you got to bang on the door a little bit. My parents are never shy in terms of sharing their life stories and just getting to where they got. I think it's difficult sometimes when you see attendings and surgeons, you see them in this metaphoric high place and it's hard to picture them down on the ground where where we are as, as med students, but it's helpful to hear that perspective. And she's always been incredibly encouraging without putting pressure on me, which has been appreciated. But those stories of adversity were something that I've always known and carried with me. Yeah. And so Alex, tell me about the day you finally got into medical school and how you told your mom. Okay. So my intro to this, I'll have my mom do the second half of the story. So I looked online and I saw that I got in, but my mom was home and my dad wasn't. So I told my boyfriend at the time, and then I said, don't tell anyone. I want to tell everyone at dinner later that night. And then I'll have my mom complete the rest of the story, what happened at dinner. At dinner, we were around the table with Alex's grandparents and some friends. And we're going around the table to see what's new with everybody, what's up. So Alex says, well, did you hear the latest? And I go, and you know, no, no, say the latest. And she says, I got into medical school. And like, everybody's face just dropped. <laughs> well just played, dropped. Well <laughs> what was that like seeing everybody's face drop, Alex? It was emotional, especially when something's been in the works for so long and you put so much effort into it. It's always nice to see your team react to your wins. And I'm glad I kind of announced it in that ceremonious way. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I asked that because myself, I, I'm Canadian as well. And so I also was a reapplicant. I remember finding out I got into Emory. And I remember that my mom was swimming in our pool. And I just blurted it out. I stopped her from swimming. She kind of looks up at me from the pool and she's got like goggles and earplugs in. And she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I got into Emory. And she just shrieked in happiness. And I can still remember her face exactly at, at that moment, which is why I was curious how this happened with you two. You know, That's as so a, special. I, yeah, it is. And as a parent, to see your child spread their wings and know that they'll become self-sufficient and, and be happy and do something that they love. What more can you ask for? It's, it's a, just a wonderful feeling. If you could speak a bit about your road to plastics, how you got interested in plastics and kind of specialty navigating that world. My goal in my head when I started medical school was that I wanted to work with children and I was convinced I wanted to become a pediatrician. I made sure that pediatrics was going to be my first rotation. I was going to kill it. That was my goal. And pediatrics was my first rotation. And I went through it and I said, oh my God, this is not what I thought at all. I love the children. The children are great, but it just wasn't what I expected. And so I was a little down there because you say, okay, well, what will I do? Or do I still do this? Whatever. And anyways, my second rotation was surgery. 
And all of a sudden I was, I was so happy. I was happy because I was working with my hands. I was happy because I like to do something and see a result right away. I was happy with the emergency part of it. I realized that just as my father was a, a contractor and my mother was a seamstress, I too am a manual worker. It's in my blood and I, and I love to work with my hands. So I said, okay, fine. Surgery is it. I know that it's surgery. So then you go through all your other rotations. And then when you apply to a subspecialty in surgery, I said to myself, well, it was important for me to have a family. Like family comes first beyond and before anything else. And I said, well, whatever I do in my career, I want to make sure that I'm at the top of my game. And what specialty will allow me to be at the top of my game and still have a, a family and still be very involved with my family. And at that time, I had a buddy who was ahead of me who was just got accepted into plastic surgery the year ahead of me. And he said, well, why don't you try plastic surgery? Like we can open up a little clinic together and we can have a nice practice and you can have your family and everything else. Like, okay, that sounds good. So I applied and there was one spot and I happened to be at the interview process. This is a funny story too. At the interview process, I was the last one to interview. It was 11.15 by the time they got to me. And I could see everybody around the table like dozing off and just wanting to get home. So I figured I got to wake them up somehow because it's not going to go very well. And at one point, one of the questions was, well, what are you going to do if you don't get accepted? And I looked around and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I says, I'm going to call my uncle Guido. And they looked at me like everybody woke up at that point because what? They didn't expect that kind of an answer. And I said, I'm going to call my uncle Guido and he's going to make you an offer that you won't be able to refuse. (laughs) (laughs) And I still say that I got into plastics thanks to my uncle Guido. (laughs) A true Italian. (laughs) So anyways, so I... I I got into plastics and then as you're doing your plastics rotations, one of the rotations was pediatric plastics. And again, I found my love for the children and they were looking for an attending. So it worked out perfectly. And at that time, they took me out to dinner and said, yes, yes, we really want you. And we want you to do craniofacial surgery. And I said to them, you got to be kidding me because at that time there was a craniofacial surgeon there. And as I was watching him operate, He'd do these long 12-hour cases and you could see sweat coming down his forehead going on practically onto the patient. I go, I can't do that. I'm a little girl. Like, I don't think I can do that. And they kept saying, no, no, don't worry about it. You can do it. I go, okay. And that's how I ended up doing craniofacial surgery. If they had told me hand surgery, I would have done hand surgery. If they would have told me whatever, I was happy doing pediatric plastic surgery. And it turned out that I ended up being a craniofacial pediatric surgeon in addition to all the other pediatric plastic surgery that we do. And so how is it different as far as getting positions like that in Canada? Because I think there are definitely a limited number of spots compared to at least the United States. Yes. So in Canada, you have what are called PREMS, which are positions that the government allots with the amount of money that comes with it. And each hospital has a number of PREMS. So you have to have a PREM available in order to hire a surgeon to come in. At one point, it was very difficult. Now it's opening up a little bit more. And it's the important thing is to get a PREM. So if you get a PREM in one hospital, you can actually work in other hospitals also. It's, but you have to work in that hospital that gave you the PREM. So you can divide your time. 
So the positions are limited. They are opening up. You have to have one of these prems that comes with you, but usually the hospital will let you know if there's positions available coming up in the forthcoming years. And if you have a subspecialty, a very specific subspecialty also, sometimes prems will open up for you. So that can also happen. So it is a bit constrained in a certain way and controlled in a certain way, but with time and especially with some expertise, the doors open. And so you mentioned that you got into plastics because you wanted a field that you could do surgery and also still balance your home life. And then you just described this former craniofacial plastic surgeon doing these 12-hour cases. Did that goal actually work out for you or were you slaving away in the hospital all the time? So I slaved more than I thought I would, but I realized that that's my DNA also. Yes, they're hard cases and yes, they were heavy cases. I realized very quickly that it takes an organization, a hierarchy of organization, because my husband was traveling a lot because of business. What we did is I'd get my mother in to help out, and then I couldn't call her at 2 o'clock in the morning when I was getting called in. And I remember even at the beginning taking my baby with me to the emergency while I was doing something and having a nurse take her home with her to her apartment, and I was like, this is not working. (laughs) This is definitely not working we'd end up hiring a nanny. And if that didn't work, then I had other friends underneath that. So you need kind of a hierarchy of people that are going to help you out to make sure that everything goes smoothly. And did little things like I made sure that I my the home that we bought was next to the hospital. So I wouldn't have to travel 40 minutes or 30 minutes to do an emergency. Or if my child was home because she had asthma and asthma attack, I could actually do my clinic, leave, go check up on her, come back, and nobody even knew that I was away. When I got home, we had a nice meal. We you know, decanted the day and, and spent uh, time together to, to figure out, okay, what happened today and everything else. And after that, we played. I was fortunate to have great training. I was fortunate to work with good colleagues. I was fortunate to have an exceptional husband and great kids. So things worked out. Dr. Bertolizzi, is your husband in medicine? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> He's, He's in the uh, business world. Yeah. Okay. Who is the good cop and who is the bad cop? We chat portfolios. My portfolio was health and education. And so whatever I said about health or education, my husband would say, it's your portfolio. I follow you. And his was uh, sports and leisure and finance. <laughs> He took care of all the houses, finances, everything else, and I didn't want to hear about it. That worked out really well. That's funny because in my household, my husband is also in business, and obviously I'm a, a surgeon. We have chief roles. So I'm a chief medical officer, and he's the chief financial officer. Yeah. So it sounds like we have a very similar deal. At what point in your training did you have Alex and her brother? I had Alex in my fellowship year. And her brother, 16 months later, I thought that the fellowship year would be a good year because you don't have the responsibility that they're not your own patients yet. My fellowship ended December 31st and she was born December 18th because she was a C-section. If not, she would have been born December 31st. (laughs) So I organized it perfectly. I got pregnant just as I planned it. I decided to have the two children very close because I was ready 32 years of age and I wanted, I didn't want to drag it on too long and I felt I was up for it. Yeah. 
32 and 34 is when I had my children. Especially just given the field you do with pediatrics, I'm not a parent yet, but I know for my friends that are parents, their pediatric rotations for surgery are one of the hardest because they see their child in these. How is it being a mom and being a pediatric surgeon at the same time? You know, you treat every child as your own. And I always say that to parents, especially when you do these big cases and you explain to them the procedure, the risk, the complications and everything else. I always end up after all my spiel, I tell them, I will treat your child on the table as if it was my own. And what that means is that you take it to heart. So when things go wrong, you don't sleep well at night. Your mind sometimes goes back to work. You end up triple, double, you know, quadruple checking everything. If you treat every child like your own, there's no reason why you shouldn't feel uh, good about it. Alex, what was it like growing up with a mother who was a surgeon? Did she make it to activities of yours? And how was home life for you, especially compared to other children your age? Mm -hmm. So every big milestone she was at, for sure. I think if I were to use other families to compare to, the biggest difference was the equality I saw between the mother and father role. At least this is just, of course, within the context of a nuclear family, because my mom had less flexibility in terms of surgeries and scheduling and all that. A lot of times my dad would come to the basketball games, but when it came to the recitals, it was, everyone was there. We used to always joke at my basketball games Jeff and the ladies. Jeff is my dad's name. So it was Jeff and all the moms. There was very much, at least from my perspective, a partnership between my parents on that realm. I think it takes understanding on both perspectives. And I think a lot of that understanding comes in hindsight. At least that's the way I, I see it. You know, she followed her dreams. And that, especially in my 20s, has given me the permission to follow mine. Do you remember as a child feeling like you understood why your mom was maybe not there sometimes? Or how was, what do you remember from being a child? How did you feel about it without the adult spin on it? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think it was in high school when I started to understand. I carried a lot of pride saying my mom was a surgeon. But sometimes, of course, I'd be a little annoyed by stuff. So if I got dropped off at school for her to make a surgery... I wasn't necessarily pumped about waking up at 6.30 in the morning to go to school and wait for someone to open the school, you know? <laughs> and I think that's just kind of the accommodating that happens. And I think especially after the first time I saw her operate, that was another big moment. I was like, whoa, this is pretty cool. <laughs> when was it? Have you guys been in the OR together before? Did you shadow her or were you hospital growing up a lot? So never in the surgical setting, but I have had pretty severe asthma growing up. Having someone in the family that can navigate the health system was huge. And whenever there was any issues there, she completely took the reins. And another big part of her career now is she does a lot of international work in cleft lip and palate surgery. She took us on a mission with her. I think it was towards the end of high school for me. And that was the first time Myself, my brother, and I believe also my dad first saw her operate. And it's funny because at home, she's so cute and little, we always poke fun at her. But then when we stepped into the OR, we were like, 
Oh, okay. This is this is a different side. Mom was amazing and a badass surgeon. Yeah, that was exactly it. Do you think that had your mom not been a surgeon, do you think you would have found your way to surgery, or how much do you think your mom's influenced your passion for surgery and wanting to pursue it? That's a super interesting question and one that I've been thinking about more. I'm not sure if I would have found my way there, to be honest. I think there's a Freudian aspect to it all. You kind of grow up wanting to understand your parents either if it impacts you positively do as they do and if not you kind of steer the other way so my Freudian analysis of it is that it's it's like a quest to understand her life but then there's also the part where a lot of my friends have always seen this for me forever growing up I was really into art and always held on to that intersection between the arts and the sciences whereas other aspects of medicine didn't necessarily interest me. So I'm sure there's a little bit of both, but I definitely see that Freudian analysis to it. <laughs> Dr. Bortoluzzi, how do you feel about your daughter following in your footsteps and picking surgery and knowing the battles you've had and getting to the place you are now? What, how do you feel about her following behind you? Well, first of all, it's important to let you know that we never directed our kids into the profession that they want. Never, 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 never. We just wanted to them make sure that they excel in school so that all the doors would be open and then they can choose whatever door they want. I was actually surprised because Alex is a great writer and she has a lot of depths in her thoughts and her intellect also. So I was picturing her more in, as in a writing capacity or even policy making or politics. And, and even as a young kid, she had ideas and she and strong ideas and good ideas. So we always thought that she would take that direction. So we were a little surprised. I had an inkling, though. She did a whole a number of humanitarian things as a child, like as a late adolescent. And one of them was Homes for Humanity. And she came back from there saying, Oh, I had so much fun. I had a hammer in my hand and I had nails and I made the roof. And I go, huh, there's the manual labor. <laughs> so building was something that interested her. And then as she decided to pursue medicine, of course, I was very proud. I was a little surprised, but proud. And of course, that meant to me that maybe how I was all these years, uh, whether it was as a professional or as a mother, what she perceived, she actually appreciated, uh, maybe looked up to. And so that was very nice for me to think that way or to feel that way. And the fact that she's orienting towards surgery, well, maybe it's in, in the same manual labor DNA that we, uh, we have. It's definitely a powerful thing to understand that lineage. I'm excited for her. I loved being a surgeon. I thrived on being a surgeon. I have so much gratification uh, from being a surgeon. There's always a worry when you're a surgeon, stuff goes wrong. How will you handle it? How will she have the support system? All I could say is that I gave her the best example that I could give by showing her, not even talking about it, just by, by doing what I did. There are days that are tough. When a patient goes wrong and you feel guilty and you get this sense of, of hurt, you don't want your daughter to feel that. But that's part of the journey. And it's a beautiful journey. Overall, I would say I'm excited. 
I'm ready to support. I feel that I can give advice, but I'll only give it when requested. And I'm happy to be there and watch this unfold. <laughs> Alex, when you were on your surgery rotation, would you call your mom and be like, guess what surgery I did today? Yeah, definitely. So at the beginning of my third year, I just started FaceTiming my parents, like essentially every other day. And we would debrief through the day. So throughout this whole year, it's been fun, especially on surgery, to pick a brain about stuff. I'm trying to talk to those people more wise than I am right now, including my mom and including recent graduates, including residents. Dr. Portuzzi, as far as advice, what advice would you give your daughter in entering her years of applying for surgical residency and going through surgery? Enjoy the journey and whatever you do, do it well or else don't do it. And if you do it well, doors open and you'll be gratified. Just do it well, whatever it is that you decide to do. You've had some very difficult instances of loss in your life when your father, who always was your number one fan, passed away when you were only in your 20s. And then later in your life, when you lost someone who was both a mentor and a best friend to you. I was wondering if you could speak to how that loss has characterized your journey. Hmm. Yeah. It's hard to lose someone that you're close to, that is a part of your life and that has breathed life into you and sculpted you into what you are. And there is a grieving process and that's inevitable and that's healthy, but you have to continue the journey of that person that has sculpted you and that is now a part of you. And that's how you have to look at it. You don't look at it as a death, but as a continuum. Do you feel like some of this loss that you've had to experience, has that helped you to being a doctor or help you realize the balance in work and life that you now have? Absolutely. When you lose someone that is so dear, you realize that life is finite and it ends at some point and it could end any time. So you really have to make the best of it. Yeah, you have to make the best of it. And I find also that it changes your perspective and your decisions become clearer your where you want to go your path becomes clear it guides you into what's important and what is not important and as much as the pain of what you have gone through is excruciating what you gain from that experience and those changes of perspective and decisions are life-changing. Alex, as you move forward in your career, what are things that you 
think you'll be turning mostly to your mom for? Are your kids going to go to her house when for her to take care of them? Yeah, that's the plan. If I'm lucky enough to have kids, I will definitely be luring in the parents to come help out with them. <laughs> we'll have a pager. Think, we'll have a pager on us. You can call us anytime. I think being the child of someone who works in healthcare gives a unique perspective because you get a preview before you actually live it out. It's given me some ideas in terms of how I want my career to look in a lot of ways similar, but in some ways different. And I'm sure my mom would agree with this, but I think she said a yes to a lot of things and in hindsight would have said no to more things. This is just the insight I've gained from her experience. One thing that you realize when you start third year is that you're in a work environment and with work environment comes the politics because that's what happens when you have a plurality of agents. I find it's always helpful to bounce what you're thinking off of people who've been through it. So she's been helpful for that this past year and I'm sure she'll be helpful for that in the years to come. Are there any plans for you guys to get in the operating room together ever in the future? You never know. <laughs> she's been the, I do a lot of missions, humanitarian missions, and she's already been my first assistant in the OR. So she did very well. <laughs> so we'll see what the future holds. Yeah, I would love that, especially the setup she has now. The organization she works with, mostly in Guatemala, has a very sustainable model that aligns with my values, and I would really love to continue that if possible. Well, wonderful. Dr. Bortolizzi, what music do you listen to in the operating room? So when I do big cases, I do not listen to music. I need to be well concentrated. And what happens when the music is on? And you, if I do listen to it, if I do do uh, light cases, it's either pop music or classical music. When I do the big cases, I find when music is on, the anesthesia people talk louder and then the nurses talk louder and everybody talks loud. And I don't like that. I need to be concentrated on what I'm doing, especially when I do a craniofacial case and brains exposed and everything else. So no music for big cases. And for small cases, either pop or classical. Well, do you, either of you have any other questions or things you want to discuss? No, very proud of my daughter. I love our relationship. It's been a, a wonderful journey, and I look forward to seeing her fly her wings. Well, that certainly was a fun one, although I may be biased. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wiser Podcast. Join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.